Well, last week we were talking about um, a playful God, and I'm not ready to let go of that subject yet. I wanted to to uh, hang on to that a bit. For those of you who were here, um, last week was two days after my 15th anniversary of ordination, and it was kind of a coming full circle for me because that that original ordination day 15 years ago, I also gave my first sermon, my first message, and it was called The Gospel According to Lou, and it was uh, about my friend, Lou Sauer, uh, who died just two weeks before my ordination, but his last words to me and Marion were for us to just love each other, love each other, and kid around a little bit. Those 12 words began a journey for me and changed everything. It changed the sermon that I was going to give, I'll tell you that, because I realized Lou had said everything I was trying to say and did it in 12 words, so it was kind of amazing. But it also started a journey about what is the nature of the God that we're trying to chase down, the God that we're serving here. Sometimes we take our faith so seriously Sometimes it's such a burden and so much work, it's kind of like living our faith life through gritted teeth and just waiting for the rapture or death or something to beam us out. And there has to be another way to do this if what Jesus said about kingdom is really true. And so Lou's personality, his ability to make everyone that he was with feel like the only person in the world, through all the hardships that he was facing at his time of life, was really just the reflection of God for me that started me to look in different directions. And the more I looked, the more it was affirmed to me that our God is a playful God. He loves us, but he loves to kid around with us as well. He loves to laugh. He loves to engage joyfully in all of creation and everything that he's made. And he's inviting us to do the same thing. And so it's that kidding around. I wanted to read just a little bit of what we read last week just to get us in the spirit of things and for anyone who wasn't here. Lou loved us, and he loved to kid around with us. His love was the way that he had decided to live his life, but his kidding around was the way that we knew we were loved. Do you get that? His playfulness made his love real, not the love itself. His playfulness made the love real because love is never transferred directly. The effect love has on our choices is all that can ever be felt by another. Something to think about if you haven't thought about. It doesn't matter how much we say we love you. It doesn't matter how much we feel we love. The choices that are the effect of the love that we believe we have or feel is all that's really transmitted to another person. It's the choices And if we choose playfully, that says something very deep. We often say that love is a decision, and so it is in part. Love may may have been Lou's decision, but his kidding around was the proof that he actually liked the decision he made, that his decision had transformed him from someone who practiced love to someone who had fallen deeply in love. Lou was transformed, and that made all the difference. Thoreau wrote that most men lead lives of quiet desperation, and go to the grave with the song still in them. What is it about the gospel, the good news, that isn't good enough anymore to actually transform our lives from being characterized by fear to being characterized by contentment, and from there to being able to play at love? What did Lou know that we don't? 
Was there some wonderful joke that God told him that kept him smiling and laughing every time he recalled the punchline? I think so. I think God kept Lou laughing because Lou had finally seen God as God is. Lou couldn't tell us the joke. He had to be there. But we could see it written on his face and in his life. Without the kidding around, without the sense of fun and play and celebration, how is it that we're really in love? The two are inseparable, each one defining and proving the existence of the other. If we're really in love, then we're also at play, and if we're really at play in that moment, we're also in love. If this is true, why would it be true? It's because being playful means feeling safe, right? It means being completely open, completely vulnerable, and knowing that you're accepted in whatever relationship you find yourself. You see how that plays into our view of God? If we feel that God isn't safe, if we feel that there's anything that we're still trying to do to make ourselves acceptable to God, trying to be good enough, then how can we be playful? We can't. As with any human relationship, we are most playful with... Who do you think we're most playful with? (laughs) Seems like it's our pets, isn't it? (laughs) Our dogs and our cats. They feel safe. We can play with them. We can let our voices go high-pitched and baby-like and do all the things that we do with our pets. Maybe we can do that with small children as well, but with adults and with each other, it's more difficult because it's difficult for us to feel safe. And with God, it's the same thing. What are our lives characterized by? Now, all of this may sound great to you. I don't know. But the question remains, what do we do with this? How do we get from A to B? How do we move through this? You know, my wife, Marion, is, is studying um, life coaching right now. She's taking classes, and she's really getting excited about the material, and she's telling me about what she's learning. And uh, one of the things that she was telling me about is the difference between life coaching and counseling. And it's a big difference because counseling, therapeutic counseling, therapy, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, generally speaking and oversimplifying, looks at the past to try to find the past hurts and traumas, the things that are affecting our present, looks into the subconscious, tries to find out all those underlying causes in order for the person to be able to be freed up and to move forward with their lives. Whereas life coaching is looking at the future and saying, how do we get from where we are right now to where we want to be? What does that path look like? Let's break it down. Let's set goals and milestones and a discernible way through that's going to take us there. It's kind of like the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy, if you're familiar with that at all, and and psychoanalysis, because psychoanalysis is what we just described. It's going to look at the past. But CBT, cognitive behavioral, is going to look at your past is your present is really difficult right here and right now. If we can fix some faulty thinking, the cognitive part, if we can fix some faulty behaviors, the behavioral part, then we can map a way forward. And so it's looking at right here, right now, life coaching and CBT, and trying to pass create and pass through the difficulties, creating a new future as we go, a new present as we go. And in the process, the past starts to heal as well. But it's a different mindset. There is a discernible path. There are things that we can do to get where we need to go. And that's kind of what we're doing here. 
What we want to do and what we have been doing here at The Effect is like CBT, like life coaching. We're always trying to connect any kind of theological or spiritual principle to ground level. The things that we can do right now and we can string these things together and go where we need to go. Someone came back from a retreat and was telling me that they had this great experience. And the question was, how do I take that great experience that I had on the mountaintop and make it continue to be real in my life right here and right now? Because the problem is, is most mountaintop experiences stay on the mountaintop. They don't translate because there isn't a clear way through. The answer is you take the revelation, you take what it is that you, that the insight that you gained in your prayers, in your mountaintop experience, in your retreat, wherever, and then you immediately have to ask, how do I apply this to every situation that I face daily? The smallest things, the most insignificant things. If there isn't a map, if there isn't a plan, if there isn't a way, capital W, which Jesus had set up for us, then those insights are going to stay irrelevant to a moment. We won't get where we want to go. The emotional experience, the peak experience will fade and we won't see the change that we're looking for. This is what we're trying to get past. This is what we're trying to, to move in a different direction from. So when we talk about lose gospel and all of this wonderful playfulness and, and kidding around, how are we going to be able to actually implement in, that, in our lives? How do we move our character from wherever it is to a playfulness, to the, to the kind of life that Lou exemplified, that Jesus exemplified? Well, the first thing we can talk about is what this is going to be not. We're not just going to be working on the practice, you know, of kidding around, of joking playing practical jokes, laughing. We're not going to just turn... I had a friend that if you expressed any kind of doubt, if you expressed any kind of anxiety, you know what he'd say? You know worrying is a sin. Jesus commanded that we not worry, so worrying is a sin. Great, now I got that on top of all the other stuff that I was dealing with. Well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to add just another rule to the book. Okay, now in addition to everything else that I have to do, I also have to be funny. I have to kid around. I have to joke. No, we're not going to add more things. It's going to move in the other direction for that. It's not going to be a rule to follow. It's going to be a state of being to enjoy. Instead of coming from the outside in, conforming, it's going to come from the inside out. It's going to look like relaxing the death grip that we have on faith, that we have on love. Stop trying so hard to make things fit, to pound square pegs into round holes and to start to enjoy the ride. Okay. Maybe that gives us a little bit more of a conception, but still, how do we do it? Well, I can tell you one thing. You don't do it the way I was doing it on Friday because I really blew it on Friday. Friday was a tough day for me. Friday was uh, one of those days on top of a, one of those weeks, I guess. There have been a lot of things that had been building up. By the time I got to Friday, I was pretty fried and I had a full day. And first thing that happened when I got to work, I found out that someone was posting to our 
treatment center website unfairly, all these horrible scathing reviews, and we're trying to deal with them, trying to figure out, okay, how do we you know, deal with this? What do we do? And, and how's this going to affect the business? And this is so unfair and all these things. I had a, a pretty heavy counseling session right after that. And right after that, I needed to go to the doctor. Marion had talked me into uh, going to see the doc about some things that were nagging me. And if you know anything about me, you know I stay as far clear from the medical profession as I possibly can. It was funny. The doc finally, oh. And then I get there, and, and they say, okay, the doc's going to be a little late. First nurse comes out. Second nurse comes out. Well, it's going to be about an hour. And I think, well, what's the point of making a, an appointment then? You know. So I go out and I get some lunch. I come back and, and I'm still waiting there. Finally, the doc is in there and saying, "How long have you been with Kaiser?" Oh, at least 25 years. Boy, you never come in, do you? And it's like, no, I don't. You know. But she's looking at the things and then she's giving me this whole barrage. Well, you haven't been here in so long. You're going to need blood work and you should have this and you should have a colonoscopy and you should. And she's just like, totally stressing me out because she's like, oh, it's like I don't want. It's funny because at one point she looks and says, you're not going to do the colonoscopy, are you? i just getting that vibe from you. And it's just like, yeah. It's like she wanted vaccines, tetanus, and something about shingles, and I don't know. It was just on and on. I finally get out from that, and I still have a lot of work to do. And then we were going to meet someone for dinner and then see a play out in the park here in San Juan afterwards. And we're running late. And uh, I run late a lot, but I hate hanging someone up in a, in a restaurant. And so I'm trying to weave through traffic. The freeway is all slow and horrible and, and my, you know, anxiety is rising. And we finally get into San Juan and we're driving through and it's still heavy. I pull into a parking lot and I want to let Marion and Brennan out and someone comes in right behind me and Marion's saying, there's someone behind you. And I'm saying, well, they can just wait a minute, you know, and why don't you guys just get out? And at that point, all the playfulness in Marion, and she had been good, so, all, so good all week long and supporting me through a lot of it, it was gone. And I felt it, and I just felt this sinking. It's like I wasn't even aware of what I was doing or how it was escalating until I saw her. You know? And she gets out, Brandon gets out, I go to the parking lot, still have to fight to find parking, of course, and then Marion calls me. The guy that we were supposed to meet wasn't even there. He was someplace else. I missed a memo somewhere along the way, and they were at the park already. All of this that I was trying to do was for something that wasn't even there, you know? And I went back, and when I got to the to the restaurant, we had dinner there anyway, and I apologized to Marion and, and Brennan, and I could see that she accepted it, but the playfulness was gone. You know, that sense of connection, that just that, that laughter, that look in the eye. And you have to think about that. This playfulness we're talking about, this sense of tenderness, this sense of vulnerability, is the most delicate thing. It's like dew on a leaf in the morning. The least jarring just slides it right off. The sun comes out and it's gone. It is this mark of real connection, openness, transparency, vulnerability, when you're playful, when you're feeling that way, there's that tender connection, you know? It's because you are completely open to that person, which makes you your most vulnerable. And you can only do it when you feel safe. You can only do it when you know that you're accepted. And if any of those conditions change, it's gone, you know? 
I tried to start making amends in the morning. I made Marian toast and coffee. and We had a lot of things to do on Saturday. And by Saturday afternoon, it was starting to come back. You know, But it takes a while. It doesn't turn on a dime. That's why it needs to be treated with such care to really cherish and treasure our ability to be playful with each other, to enter that kind of space and to stay there. Now, you know, I can tell you about my week a little bit more because it was a tough week. There was a lot of loss in this last week. There was someone here that, that uh, at the effect who is probably going to be leaving the effect over theological issues, and I hate when that happens. I hate when theology or our beliefs stated affect our relationships, but I know why it happens and how it happens, and it doesn't affect my my theological stance or my belief in God anymore but it still hurts and it still marks you know possibly the end of a relationship I had a woman who called me who has had two deaths in her family in the last week both a 20 year old and a 26 year old an overdose and and a suicide and then she called yesterday to say that her own son had attempted suicide in the last 48 hours and she didn't know what to do Lots of these kinds of calls coming in with this kind of pitch, this kind of trauma going on. And after a while, you start questioning yourself. Is there anything that I can do for this person? Is there anything that I can say you know, that, that is going to help? And what if I say the wrong thing and make it worse? You know, Maybe my style of communication or something, the way I communicated, caused this person to leave. And start to doubt start to question my ability. We know that we need to add more marketing and promotion onto what we do here at The Effect because we've never done that in 10 years. And I feel wholly inadequate to that task. And we need more video. You know, it's got to be video. Everything's about video. You know, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes and get in front of a camera. But it's like, okay, you know, can I stretch that far? Can I do that? You know, will I be any good if I do do that? I don't know. All of these things tend to creep up. So why was I such a basket case on Friday? I had lost my trust that God was there. I had lost my sense of safety that I was acceptable in this relationship. All these things that I harp about week after week from this podium, you know, am I immune? Absolutely not. We're all human. We all kind of rise and fall. But to lose that sense of security, that sense of safety in the relationship, to lose the trust that God is there and always going to be blowing new breath into my tired bones when I don't think I've got anything left takes all the playfulness right out the window. It's all about fear, you know? It's all about trying to exert control. I couldn't control my life, but by God, I'm going to control this car. I'm going to do that. I'm going to put this car where I want it to go, and I'm going to make it happen. And as silly as that sounds, isn't that what we do? We control the things we can as if somehow that's going to alleviate the angst and the anxiety we have for all the things that we can't control, all the scary things of life. You know. <laughs> so where did I go wrong on the playfulness scale? besides everywhere. But that was why. That's what was going on. The arch enemy of playfulness 
is control. Because our need for control is always fear-based. It is always our fear that causes us to want to control things, to put a lock down on them. And it's born of fear. Playfulness, which is tender and vulnerable, cannot exist in the presence of fear or in the presence of attempted control. They absolutely cannot coexist. And we do this with God all the time. All the time. As individuals, as church, as full religions, we try to control life by turning our beliefs, our stated beliefs, into certainties. We need them to be certain. We need them to be absolute because of the fear that we have. We can't control that, so I'm going to control this. I can control this car. I can control this creed. I can control this statement of faith. I can control this belief. I wanted to read to you just a little bit from uh, an interview with David Benner. And David Benner, is a, he's a PhD. He's a psychologist. He's an author, international speaker. And I love this. His, he's a self-described wisdom teacher. Nice. I want to be a wisdom teacher. But he's talking about belief and faith here. And he says, although they are related, faith and beliefs are quite different things. Belief is conviction of the trustworthiness of a proposition. Beliefs are construct of thought that we accept as the truth about something or someone. Beliefs are often simply objects of attachment that provide a misleading sense of certainty. This guy's a little heady, but let's see if we can just get the, the nut of what he's trying to say. Beliefs form as we try to make sense of life. In their natural development, they might start as assumptions, then become working hypotheses, then take the form of tentative convictions, and finally emerge as certainties. What pushes this forward is our need to manage the anxiety that naturally arises in the face of the complexities of life. When I speak of a misleading sense of certainty, what I'm suggesting is that the certainty associated with firmly held absolute beliefs distances the person person holding the beliefs from the, and I love this term, from the appropriate anxiety of living they would otherwise experience. That is, from the anxiety of simply being human. This in turn keeps them from the maturing influence of a more creative engagement with the underlying existential anxiety. Have you ever thought about that? Are we supposed to be complete? <laughs> just laughing. No, I never really thought about that. What the heck is he saying? But have you ever thought about are our, our, our lives supposed to be completely anxiety free? Are they supposed to be? We want them to be. Jesus said, I came to bring you peace. But then he said, no, I didn't come to bring you peace. I came to bring a sword. Well, what the heck is he talking about? He's talking about the side of his face. When he says, I am the Prince of Peace, and I leave you peace, my peace I give you, he's saying shalom, which means the greatest amount of health and wealth and wholeness and healing and connection and unity that is possible. When he says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, that word, a different Aramaic word, means calm or tranquility. He didn't come to bring that. I've usually called it divine tension or a sacred tension. You know, it's like that, that uh, what's the, the guy who walks across the, the cable? Higher wire walker guy. Yeah, that guy, you know? 
It's like if they completely relax, they'd be a puddle on the floor. Every step is a balance with the pole trying to get across, and everything is finely tuned. Now, they do it so effortlessly because they're so practiced at it, but there always is a tension at the core. Otherwise, the balance is not maintained. If we're going to live a balanced life, it's going to be with what he's calling this appropriate anxiety, what we can call sacred tension if we want to. But there is something there that's appropriate. Being human is a perilous thing. We all know we're going to die. It's out there someplace. We have no idea when or where. We know that things are not under our control, that things can hit us at a moment's notice and completely change the world that we've so carefully constructed. If that doesn't give you some existential anxiety, then you're not really paying attention to life. And to try to to paper over that, to try to wish that into the cornfield by making our beliefs absolute certainties is what he calls misleading. But it's illusion. We're living a lie. And the truth be told, it's our response to this existential anxiety. It's the way we work through sacred tension that grows us up, that realizes the purpose of why we're here as human beings in the first place. That tension is the motivating force. It's our drive that takes us through exactly what we're supposed to be doing here. It's not supposed to be completely absent. And if we as human beings accept that there are mysteries to life that we will never understand, that there are things that we cannot control, that there is paradox that we will never resolve, if we can embrace that and hold on to that type of anxiety, then... Then, and only then, are we candidates for kingdom, this quality of life that Jesus was talking about. Benner continues, The primary way in which beliefs give us security is through a sense of certainty. Our need for certainty arises from the uncertainties of life, and the anxiety associated with this pushes our ideas, thoughts forward. Because beliefs of the certainty and the simplification, we're looking for the certainty and the simplification they provide. I think we confuse things when we treat beliefs as truth because at least in terms of religious beliefs, there's absolutely no way to confirm or disconfirm them. Right? We can't really prove the existence of God to anyone else, logically, empirically. We can only prove the existence of God to ourselves, experientially. But once we're convinced, we can't pass that conviction on to anyone else. This is why I prefer to talk about trust rather than beliefs. I trust God with the full weight of my life, but it is God I trust and not my ideas about God. I love that. Once we back away from beliefs as truth claims, we can hold our constructs and understandings with humility. What does it mean to hold your, 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 your constructs and your understandings with humility? Well, humility properly understood is an absolutely realistic view, understanding, experience of our relationships with each other, that we're not any better, but we're not any worse, our relationship with God, that he is the provider and we are the receiver, we are his dependents, he is awe-inspiring, but also friend. That's humility. And to treat our beliefs and our understandings with humility is the same way. To see them exactly for what they are. They're our best guess. 
our best educated working model of how all of this connects, what these relationships all mean. And they allow us to take steps forward. They allow us to move forward with our life. But to try to put any more importance or certainty on them than that, I guess would be prideful if it's the opposite of humility. On this and many other matters, I stand with the mystics more than the dogmatists. You know what dogma is? Dogma is a belief that is accepted without question and without any proof. It is just so because we said so and nothing else. That's what dogma is. He stands with the mystics, the ones who realize there's mystery out there, who don't understand everything rather than the dogmatists. The mystics rather universally warning us of the foolishness of assuming that words and thoughts can contain ultimate mystery. I love the way the Sufi mystical poet Hafiz puts this. And I put this into your um, inserts if you want to take a look because I just thought this was terrific. This little snippet of a poem. Hafiz writes from the 14th century, by the way, I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, how are you? (laughs) I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, what is God? If you think that the truth can be known from words, if you think that the sun and the ocean can pass through that tiny opening called the mouth, oh, someone should start laughing. Someone should start wildly laughing now. (laughs) 1300s. The truth is the truth. It makes me laugh to think of how hard I worked for so long to try and reduce truth to propositions that I could frame in a way that actually contained truth. It makes me laugh. A more creative engagement would be to live with the humility of holding constructs about matters of faith lightly. Think of what we've done to faith. Think of what we've done to the church. Think of what we've done to religion. We've turned them into dogmatic certainties. Why? So we won't have to feel or suffer any of the anxiety or the doubt that is dogging us. But as soon as fear, as soon as control, as soon as certainty is in the room, playfulness is out the window. You cannot have both. Because a certainty is born of fear. It isn't safe. But isn't faith about certainty, you ask? Some of you may be asking. Isn't faith the opposite of doubt? No. Faith actually is an acceptance of the mysteries of life. It's an acceptance of the paradoxes that can't be resolved. It's the ability to act in the presence of doubt. Without doubt, there can't be fear with Without doubt, there can't be faith. Without fear, there can't be courage. Each one defines the other. Faith is actually the ability to act in the face of the doubts and the uncertainties uncertainties and the mysteries and the paradox as if something were already true and to keep on moving in that direction. That's faith. Faith is not about certainty. When did Jesus ever promise us certainty? If you take a look at his words, he promised us everything but. We just talked about the fact that he said, I didn't come to bring you peace. I didn't come to bring you tranquility and calm. I came to bring the sword. The sword is the tension. The sword is that sacred tension, that existential anxiety. It's not going to go away. 
And at times when you're moving into a whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking about life, a whole new worldview, that tension is going to ramp up into disturbance and disorientation. Are we willing to go there? Faith is not about certainty. And kingdom, this quality of life that Jesus says that we can enjoy with each other and with our Father, is not about control. It's the exact opposite of control. Take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 13. Some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked those who brought the children to Jesus. But he said, let the children alone and don't hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You've got to imagine the scene here. Imagine, right? Jesus is the wisdom teacher. Jesus is the rabbi. He is this respected healer and teacher who is moving through the countryside. All the adults want to talk to him. You know, it's kind of like everybody crowding the stage after a performance. Everybody wants to talk to the actors and wants to talk to the musicians. Everybody wants to talk to Jesus. They all have something. And some of them actually have money that they can donate to the cause here, right? Because... The, the, the group that Jesus is heading up has to eat. They have to have something. So he's doing all this important work and someone's bringing these little kids to him. What can the kids do? The kids can't further the agenda. The kids can't do it. Jesus always has time for the children. He rebukes his handlers and tells them, never stop the kids from coming to me. And we can only imagine the scene when he has them in his lap. The giggles, the laughs, the tickles, whatever was going on. Jesus wasn't just going to sit there and you know, pat them on the head. He's going to engage with them. Jesus can go from wisdom teacher to Captain Kangaroo in two seconds flat. Just like that. How can he do that? How can he make that switch back and forth? I think there's a clue right here in this verse. But it's papered over. We don't see it because of the way it's translated. Look at that. This is the NASB. Let the children alone and don't hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Do you know that word belongs is not in the original text? Either the Greek or the Aramaic. It's not there. It's a translator's choice to try to make sense of something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The word that stands there for belongs is actually a form of the verb to be. I exist. I am. You are. They, it. And so, for once, I'm going to quote the King James. I never do that. But they, I think got it right. Take a look how King James translated it. He didn't actually do it, but he gets credit. Jesus said, suffer little children. Now, suffer in Middle English means to permit. Permit little children and forbid them not to come unto me. So here it is. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's translated, for such as these are the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't belong to children. The kingdom doesn't belong to such as these. The kingdom is such as these. People such as these, people living this playful life, people with this kind of character and sensibility and openness and vulnerability and sense of dependence are kingdom. The quality of life that they experience and that they enjoy 
is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. There's no separation here. Jesus is kingdom. He's just as home being the wisdom teacher as he is being the horse that a child, the child is riding. He can move effortlessly at a moment's notice back and forth. He sees no difference in station. He sees no difference in significance. Everything is of a piece. Jesus is kingdom playing right out before our eyes. Lou was kingdom for me playing out right before my eyes. This is what we're after. Kingdom is people living like children with that kind of openness, playfulness, vulnerability, dependence, with that kind of kidding around. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, how are we going to become such as these? We keep coming back to that question. How do we do it? I've told you how not to do it. You know? Sometimes it's do what I say, but not what I do. <laughs> but the bigger thing is, is just that I can't always do what I know is true to do. I just can't do it. Some days I cannot break through the difficulties. Hopefully my recovery time is getting better. And that's what we can ask of ourselves. But if we don't even know where we're going, how in the world will we ever get there? How are we going to become such as these? Well, we can start acting as such as these, but not out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of obedience or commitment or any of those things, but because nothing else feels so good. Don't you all like to laugh? Who doesn't like to laugh? Even when a relationship is compromised and the playfulness is gone, if one person can start laughing, the healing can begin. You see it happen over and over again. It feels so good to be in that playful mode, to just let everything else go and be that open. For all my flaws, if you could prove to me that there is no God, that we just wink out of existence at the end of this life, I wouldn't change a thing that I'm doing. Because as badly as I do it sometimes, this is the best I've ever felt. This is the most content that I've ever been. This is the, the best able I am to keep all depression at bay. See, it's not about rewards sometime later. It's not about doing well now so I get something later. This kingdom is its own reward. This kingdom is a way of living life that every one of us wants. But maybe are too afraid to move toward, to do the things that are required in order to be able to be that vulnerable, to be that open to allow people to see us in that way. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to move in this direction? Actually, Polly, you hear Polly? Polly sent me this, and I just thought it was great. It was an article by Ann Voskamp, who is actually quoting Mary Oliver, who is a celebrated Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. And I put that in your bulletins as well. Where is it? Mary Oliver. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And Anne is going to jump on that. So you asked me how, Anne says. I've been thinking about your question, the one you asked the other day about how to live your life. I don't know much, and there's a lot more than just this, but maybe it's a bit of how Mary Oliver put it. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. 
And some days I think maybe she sort of stole the words of Jesus because they sound like the essence of a life of communion, a life of thanksgiving, a Eucharistic life. Pay attention. Pay attention to the shades of the sky over you and the smell of the soil under you and the unexpected ways of the souls all around you. Pay attention to the lilies of the field, to the soft carpet of hair on the curve of a a baby's ear to the warmth of sun as you lay on the back lawn and breathe. Pay attention long enough to experience life and you buy your brain enough food so it doesn't starve. Turn off your phone. Be still. Be present. And you get the gift of now. Do it often. Grab a lifeline by stepping offline. You'll find your true self when you look for your reflection in the eyes of souls and not the glare of screens. And be okay with not being seen or heard. It will let you hear and see better. And be okay with not being liked. Life and art are never about applause. Pay attention and forget paying for the internet things because that can catch you up and leave you feeling disoriented and discontent and discredited that make your closet hurt and your wallet hurt and your very soul hurt because the frame of your life wasn't meant to carry the burden of that stuff. Pay attention to the ugly and the beautiful and the beauty of Christ playing in 10,000 unlikely places. The face of Christ in the face of suffering. You buy awe when you pay attention. Practice paying attention and and you daily practice the scales of creativity. Pay attention and let go of perfection. Perfectionism is slow death by self. It will kill your skill, your spark, your art, your soul. And then go ahead and be astonished. Grow beautifully deaf to the scoffing of the cynics who suit up in their everyday steely sarcasm to numb themselves to a vulnerable joy. The cynics who only wear armor to shield the heart from the beauty that wounds. The weary who steel themselves against the wounds of all this glory. It can seem easier to reject the world before the world hurts you. Be astonished by the depths of grief which are but the foundations of the heights of joy. And grief and joy are of the same landscape of any soul really alive. And be astonished by oppression and aggression and transgressions and be astonished, be a psalmist and be admonished to just be ravished by a world that makes children laugh wonder at the spray of sprinklers and the splatter of water balloons, and go ahead and be like a child and say again, again to the rising of the sun, and again, again to the crashing of waves, and be astonished like the children, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't go to bed at night until you've read from the dictionary, the lectionary, and pages of poetry are absolutely necessary. And then go and tell about it. Tell about what happens when you pay attention, when you are astonished, when you have tasted the gospel. Tell it to the kid lost in the park, the guy lost in the dark, the family losing their matriarch, a lost generation that needs to be marked by him before they can make a mark for him. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. And then what happens if we even do some of this Back to Hafiz. 
What happens when your soul begins to awaken your eyes and your heart and the cells of your body to the great journey of love? First, there is wonderful laughter and probably precious tears and a hundred sweet promises and those heroic vows no one can ever keep. But still, God is delighted and amused that you once tried to be a saint. What happens when your soul begins to awake in this world to our deep need to love and serve the friend? Oh, the beloved will send you one of his wonderful wild companions. It's that simple and it's that difficult at the same time. Can we just engage? Can we pay attention to everything that's around us, no matter how insignificant? Allow ourselves to be astonished by it to the point that we can't help but tell. First with our changed life, our attitudes, our choices, our playfulness, and then eventually with our words. Let's pray. Father, if we can only love because you loved us first, then we can only play because you played first. Everything that is good in this life comes from you. Every gift from above has you as the source. Help us to realize that we can't go wrong with you. We can't lose you. We can only walk away. Help us to see that it's safe for us to play, safe for us to be vulnerable, safe for us to let others see us as we really are and to laugh about that and about anything. Help us to remember to trust that you are exactly who you say you are so that we can feel safe enough to be who we are, your children, your dependents, your beloved. Thank you, Father, for everything. Thank you for giving us these gifts. Help us to run now and play. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.